is your host, Kathy Garrett from the Twinkie Chronicles podcast, where two twins are shedding light on the childbearing years. I have a special guest today, uh, one of my AFE sisters, Miss Courtney Johnson. Hi. How are you today? Good. Doing pretty good. It's a Saturday, cold Saturday here. We're in St. Louis, so it's the high today is a 27 degrees. And it sure. Right now, it's currently the low of maybe 19. Oh, so my goodness. We're staying, I would, in- staying inside. Yeah. Uh, so I know we've discussed um, off mic that we wanted to discuss a little bit more about your AFE, but can you start with a little bit of an intro about you and your family? Yes. Uh, we are a family of four, and uh, we have two children. We have Sammy, who is five and our son which is my AFE baby he is um two and then we have four little angels so in between Sammy and RJ I had four miscarriages so I like to say we're a family of four and but we're really I like to say a family of six too so absolutely yeah that's so sweet uh so what do you love the most about yourself post-children Oh gosh, I think the capability of being able to realize what you yourself um, can come back from and what you can handle, you know, uh, post baby and everything as far as deliveries go, I went from having a blissful delivery with Sammy and then having such a traumatic delivery with RJ. I think the one thing learning from that was what I was capable of coming back from, how strong I could be, how um, sorry, that's just became more deeper than I thought it was going to be when I first answered that question, being able to realize what you can handle from being able to not move and walk to being able to start functioning fully, I think was an eye opener. And if you give yourself that time and that space to learn what you can get done in that day, when you're coming back from postpartum, um, to then where you are now, where I am at two years, uh, is an eye-opener and that's where you get your strength from I think realizing what you're capable of doing that's what I realized I 100% agree as I was reflecting on these or trying to come up with these questions and reflecting on them my answer for this question was how resilient I am Mm -hmm. and um, it truly is amazing the way our bodies are able to heal and repair themselves and what many mothers will do for their children and, yes. and the fight just to get up day to day, whatever your journey looks like. It's just truly remarkable. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Uh, I know that there's also a huge stigma around um, moms asking for help postpartum and in motherhood in general, dads as well, and parenthood also. Why do you think that there's such a stigma around that um, topic? think that's a huge stigma because in society there are so many situations where it's the mom should have all the answers the mom needs to solve the problem you know and essentially it's looked upon as we solve the problems we don't bring the problems Mm -hmm. so when we do have that moment of we need an extra hand or we need that extra support it's considered weakness and that's not how it should be viewed. I feel everybody should be given 
that support that they need so they can be a better mom, they can be a better person. It's not fair to say somebody needs support that isn't a mom or a mother. Just because you are one doesn't mean you don't need it. And yes, to be able to be supportive for our children, we need to know we have a good support system around us. And that is why I feel there is such a stigma around it because we are supposed to be the support system. We are supposed to be that strong column in the family that holds everybody up, but we can't do that without extra support. Yeah, it's, it's challenging. And I know we're both moms of two, had our AFE with our second child. My first delivery was some was traumatic, uh, obviously not to the degree that my AFE was, but um, even, and for me personally, the support was very different between my first and my second. H- how was that for you personally? Very emotional. I had with my daughter, she was, that delivery was blissfully normal as far as it could go. I was, I had eaten anything I wanted. I didn't really have any sensitivities to smells and foods, just a little bit, not much. I had normal checkups. She was head down, normal size. Everything looked great. Um, Delivery, she was, I had to be induced. That was the only thing with her at 40 weeks. And she was here and bouncing and beautiful and out the door we went. It was from the hospital and it was fine. Uh, In between her then we had my four miscarriages. So my six, uh, our total now six pregnancies. Um, And then by the time I had RJ, I was seeing a high risk specialist. I knew I had factor five and MTHFR, which uh, blood clotting factors and gene mutation Um, issues. So that's where we were kind of coming from with the miscarriages. Mm. And then I went to deliver. RJ at 38 weeks was induced again, and everything about it was off. My epidural was off. Uh, He was a bigger baby. He was head down, but sunny side up. Um, His delivery was just a little bit longer, but not anything as far as length time to too major. And then when I went into pushing and delivery, there were a lot of things that went wrong. And then the AFE occurred within 30 seconds after delivering him. Wow. So it, night and day. And it was very emotional, uh, especially still dealing with some of those emotions. Uh, I didn't even realize how much he weighed when the pediatrician, I made a phone call for one of his checkups and uh, they had wanted to know something about his weight and a couple of certain things and I couldn't answer them. I knew those things off the top of my head with my daughter, my son. I couldn't, I couldn't remember basically because I wasn't present for those, for those numbers. And those are things maternally you kind of remember they're stuck. They're in your brain. And for him, it wasn't there. So a lot of learning curves, a lot of forgiveness and a little grace. Um, I have to remember to get myself after his. Yes, I can absolutely rate. Um, relate to that. I can absolutely relate to that. I think me too with my first, I remember all the statistics and my second, actually, she was not even measured with all of the chaos that was happening in the room. The nurses were more worried about her breathing than measuring her, which I a hundred percent agree with, but yeah, there's always kind of that twinge of like, I really wish I remembered these things and even her weight there's like three different weights that they think. Yeah. Um, 
So yeah, it's just, I agree though, as you were talking, the, the thought that popped in my head was a lot of grace and yeah, you just have to give yourself grace that, you know, if you don't remember all the statistics, that's okay too, regardless of what your delivery look like. What is one piece of advice you found most useful during parenthood and or pregnancy? The advice that was given to me was allow yourself grace. Mm -hmm. And I never understood what that meant because one, as a, as a parent, when, when do you have time to give yourself grace, let alone time for yourself? Because you're so consumed with work, home, children. And during this process, I do believe um, in parenthood, grace, give yourself grace. Nothing is ever going to be perfect. Nothing is ever going to go the direction you thought it was going to go. Nothing is going to go as planned. And I think if we allow ourselves grace, calmness, and opportunity to realize there is beauty in the messy, there is beauty in the ugly, it can be fixed, then we're going to realize and rebound from those situations quicker. If we dwell on the negative of what didn't go right, what didn't happen that day, what I didn't get accomplished that day, it's going to be in the back of our minds and it's going to ruin the day and derail it. And I feel as time goes on and we allow ourselves to understand what grace, giving ourselves grace means, then we're going to know how to function within our day and our lives better. And that I've learned it's taken at least two years for me to understand what the meaning of that truly was. And, uh, and I now give that advice to everybody. And then if anybody wants to know more deeply how I feel about that, then I provide that because people really understand what grace is, but it's up to them to really sometimes understand for themselves what, what that is. And for me, it was, if the, if I burnt dinner that night for the kids and we ended up eating peanut butter and jelly, if it's the house didn't get cleaned um, in the level that I clean it every day, I can always circle back tomorrow or try again the next day. If the kids had an off day, personality-wise, they were more cranky, more argumentative. Yes, my son struggles right now with speech. He's on board with everything as far as milestones go, but his speech is lagging and that is honesty. And I feel like that has contributed because of the lack of environmental surroundings he's been around because of the pandemic. Um, so I have been allowing myself grace to realize he won't be going to college not speaking. He will still have the same opportunities as other children his age. It's just one thing that's a little off. And I know that can be sometimes frustrating for other parents, uh, especially I know my husband is not a fan of that either. We want our children to succeed and be ahead but every child learns at a different pace. And so allowing myself grace to realize he will get there. He will be in the same spot as his other peers helps me understand that and deal with that and then work with him with more patience. So that's what that means to me as a parent. Wow. Great answer. And I think, I think when I became a mom, I don't think that I fully understood you not only have to afford your children grace, but you have to afford yourself grace as well. And looking back, uh, I've been a mom for about four and a half years. Looking back there, you know, moms are 
um, not perfect. And we have our moments too. And seeing now that my daughter's four and a half, seeing her not only afford grace to her younger sister, but afford grace to me as well when I mess up is just a beautiful, beautiful picture of that um, parent-child relationship. And well, and it keeps yeah. the door open for communication. And there's one thing that I've been very, very true to heart about, especially with my daughter, big is when you've done something wrong, you say you're sorry. And that's including a parent. We are not exempt from making mistakes and needing to say sorry to our children, mm -hmm. whether we misunderstood what they were saying or what they wanted, or we were maybe a little impatient at that moment. Acknowledging that we said we were sorry that what we did may not have been right is good for them because they need to know that those those thoughts and those actions are reciprocated. Just because we're teaching them doesn't mean that we aren't exempt from that. So teaching them is part of that is it allowing us to acknowledge we've made mistakes to our children. You know, say, I hope you realize mom, mom is sorry. Mom didn't mean to do that. You know, and then they come back and say, we forgive you. That's what that whole full circle means, at least for my household. Yeah, that's absolutely beautiful. As a parent, I can't ask, I think, for anything more than that. Mm -hmm. Getting that grace from my kid just truly makes my, makes my day. They need to understand uh, that we provide that, and they can also provide that, too. So as adults, they'll understand from childhood what that Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, it took me a long time to learn that. And yeah, it's, it's a great, beautiful picture. Uh, so we have a little extra time. Can we dive a little bit more uh, into your AFE? Absolutely. Yeah. So can you tell us, you said that um, you were induced at 38 weeks. Was that because of your, was that a decision that you and your high-risk doctor made together? It was, you know, um, my high-risk doctor, he's excellent, very excellent. And uh, I wouldn't have changed any of the decisions and actions that we made. He did want to induce me at 38 weeks because I did have factor five. And as you get further along with your pregnancies, your placenta begins to age. And that means there's not as much blood flow that is being provided to the baby. And he felt with blood clotting factors um, at risk, potentially, that 38 weeks was a good point. My son was also averaging weight and growth a week ahead. So it was a very smart decision and I wouldn't have changed that. Looking back after my birth trauma, I still would have gone back and done and made the same decision of inducing at 38 weeks. So that was decided. And then I went in on January 31st to be induced. And then RJ was born February 1st, 2020 at 12.22. And by 12.23, I was starting to crash. So wow. he was vacuumed um, because they saw how erratic my blood pressure was. And I, at the time, <clears throat> I had not started crashing yet. So I did not know why we were using the vacuum because he was head down, but sunny side up. So there was, he was right there. So I didn't quite understand why we were using equipment if he was right there. To my, unto my knowledge that I had, I was being, mm -hmm. my blood pressure was very erratic at that moment. And then within 30 seconds after delivery, he was um, 
on a panda. They wouldn't let me hold him. I never got to hold him. Now, I don't even remember seeing his face. I remember looking down and rubbing his forearms and then they whisked him away very quickly. And then that's when I started to crash. So I started to go blind first. Um, I remember the room going and I remember asking my husband, tell them I need oxygen. And my sister-in-law, ironically enough, works at the hospital I was delivering. She works in their cardiothoracic ward. And um, she was there and I had her, I put her on my HIPAA. And as I was signing the paperwork at the hospital that day, there was a whisper in the back of my mind that said, add Stephanie. Wow. So I did it. I did it. And I don't regret those decisions that day because she came in, my husband texted her to come in because she was thought she was getting, you know, special aunt treatment by being able to come back. And when she came in, she came into pure chaos. So she was strictly with RJ, which is what I wanted. And then she came over to the bed and she said, uh, I've got RJ, he's right here. And I remember I told her, I know he's here, but I can't see him. I, I'm blind. I can't see him. And then my husband was standing on the other side. My anesthesiologist was next to him and I coded. I was unresponsive. So they both saw me unresponsive. And then they started doing. The sternum rub. So when I then became unresponsive, the uh, staff ended up performing the sternum rub and then I became, and then I wasn't responsive to the sternum rub. So then they knew right away that um, I was, I had probably coded, obviously the machines were telling that. So then my sister-in-law was standing there with RJ and in her arms before they had wheeled him out and they said, should we call it? And she looked over at the team and said, I would have called it 30 seconds ago. Mm -hmm. And my husband was there. So then they took my husband and physically pushed him um, against the wall. They threw my, I was wearing glasses. They threw them across the room. They ripped open my shirts. They started doing chest compressions. Uh, the team from ICU was down there in a minute, but they told me they struggled to find the room because they never get calls to labor and delivery. Sometimes by mistake, a code blue would be called down there but it's never for serious, but they ran down. They had trouble finding the room, but finally got there. They moved RJ out of the way quickly. They moved him out first so they could get my bed out. And they did struggle getting the bed out uh, quickly. So then at that point, um, my doctor in the ICU, we call him Dr. B, he was on my bed as they were wheeling me doing chest compressions past my family. And Holy moly. They had to clear the hallway, um, put everybody in their room so they could get the bed down the hallway. I came to at one point um, as I was being wheeled. And I remember my doctor leaning over me and cursing as he was running with the bed because they knew how serious it was. So then uh, they got me up to ICU. And not long after I was in ICU, within a matter of one to two minutes, I started into the DIC part of AFE. And it was pretty horrific. 
from what I was advised. It was the team of doctors coming in. They had teams from the entire hospital coming to my aid just because there was a chance of survival, but they didn't know. And it was within the matter of minutes. They called the head of the OB department and he was working out at the time and running and he actually ran to the hospital by foot um, because he was right there. So then he was in there carrying in equipment, uh, things that were needed. And at one point um, I would bleed out so quickly, so fast that I took the entire blood type of my, uh, out of the blood bank at the hospital, my entire blood type was used. Um, I used it and they ended up having to airlift blood from Columbia, Missouri, which is where the University of Missouri is. Um, and then they couldn't get the blood in fast enough as fast as I was losing it. So they were essentially microwaving the blood and actually manually putting it in um, so they could get it in as fast as they could as I was losing it. And then after about three to four hours of that, they were able to see that my blood was starting to coagulate because they ended up using Kcentra, uh, which is uh, used to help promote coagulation of the blood. And mm -hmm. it's not safe. It has to be, typically you sign off on that type of medication before procedure and it has to be approved. So here in the state of Missouri, you sign off. It's required in the state of Missouri that you sign off for it before procedure. Um, and it's very expensive. And I would need three doses of Kcentra before they would ship my blood, my body and my blood would show any type of um, reciprocation from, from the medication. Wow. Um, and then from there, I would go on to have a three to four hour surgery where they would embolize my uterine arteries. And then the, before they could move me and transfer me, they tried to do that three times. And the cameras and the monitors in the ICU room will also give a percentage of life expectancy while they're working on the patient mm -hmm. and it gave me a one percent to survive well that statistic hits hard because I was given a one percent chance as well mm -hmm. and um wow yeah. what uh blood type are you I'm O positive O positive same and so at that point did they transfer you to the other hospital I stayed at that hospital. I was never okay. transferred to another hospital. Uh, my particular hospital was able to help with RJ's recovery and mine all in the same facility. It's pretty large. So that's why it was, um, uh, I was able to stay in one spot, luckily. Um, they were able at that point, because it was before the pandemic to replenish that blood type in the blood bank. Um, but they ended up using, there was a staff that stayed on for 18 hours that mm -hmm. day just to help facilitate the blood to the doctors. They worked overtime that day. So the, the teams were wonderful. Clinicians, staff, my sister-in-law called her three cardiologists from their homes and their families to come because there was a chance they were going to put me on ECMO. So she called them in and they actually asked her if she would want to scrub in to the case. And she said, it's too close. I can't do it. It's too close to home. She goes, I need to be here to help my brother and help facilitate answers. So she, there was a chance she would have been, um, necessarily needling, uh, my arteries for the, oh. uh, ECMO, if it would have been the case, but I ended up 
they were able to stop the bleeding. Um, and I was able to recover uh, with the uterine artery embolism. But there was a chance that I would bleed internally. So I was very much uh, in intensive care because they weren't quite sure which way I would go at that point, even after the surgery to embolize my uterine arteries. Mm -hmm. And then I was in an induced coma. So I was supposed to be in an induced coma for two days. And two hours later, I woke myself up. Wow. How did you do that? Such a good question. Such a good question. I, I'll be honest, when I was crashing, I asked my anesthesiologist, I said, am I going to die? Why I don't know, I asked that question, but I did. And she said, no, you are not, which is definitely not something medical staff tell their patients just because they don't know which way it's going to go. Um, so when I, I thought, okay, I need to lay here. I need to be calm and let them do their job. And I think I thought, okay. And then I started to feel myself essentially pass out. And I thought, I'm going to sleep. I'll wake up. And then I was in and out periodically. I would come, I would become conscious and then go unconscious uh, periodically through the process of the life-saving interventions during my AFE. I remember at one point they were trying to intubate me and I was biting the equipment. And I remember I woke up and I heard one of the female staff saying, don't do that, honey, don't do that. And I remember thinking, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'll try to stop. And I remember thinking that. Um, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'll try to stop. And then I remember, I didn't know, I thought I was being wheeled out of surgery and I was actually being wheeled into surgery because I heard my mom say, we love you, Courtney, you're doing so good keep going, honey, you're doing so good. And I kept thinking, oh, I must be out of surgery. I must be in post-op. When I was really being wheeled to uh, have my uterine arteries embolized and there was mm -hmm. no, they did not know if I would survive that procedure. So I didn't realize my mom was saying goodbye. I thought she was saying, hey, welcome back. And then I somehow woke up in ICU and I knew it was dark. And I remember thinking my immediate thoughts when I opened my eyes, I remember I cracked my eyes open. I looked around. I couldn't see it was fuzzy because I didn't have my glasses on. But I remember looking around the room and I heard the equipment and I thought, this is not a postpartum room. This is not a normal hospital room. This has to be ICU. And that's exactly what I thought. Holy moly. Wow. So you and I actually have a second thing in common besides being AFE sisters. We're both twins. Yes, we both are. Have you gotten to talk a little bit about what this experience was like for your twin sister? Yes, she was actually there that day. Mm -hmm. And so we were identical twins and we don't have some of those strong twin vibes that some twins do have. We're very close. Um, and we have had some situations in our life where we've said, oh, I knew something was wrong. I can mm -hmm. just feel it. I knew something was wrong. She was in the waiting room at the time of my AFE and when I first crashed mm -hmm. and at the time when they heard when my family heard the crash as far as code blue labor and delivery room eight they stood up everybody stood up and said that's Courtney's room and but nobody knew if it was the baby or I and then my sister took a gasp and said it's not the baby it's Courtney so wow. she knew, she felt, she said, she, she goes, I lost my breath when I heard the code blue and it wasn't out of shock. She said, I knew you were experiencing some type of trauma. 
So she gasped and she said, it's not the baby, it's Courtney. And sure enough, that's what it was. When they saw RJ be wheeled by in the panda. And then when they saw them doing chest compressions on me as they were wheeling me down the, the hallway. So they knew, she knew right away it was me. She said she went through a phase where in the process where she was in limbo, she didn't know what was going on with me. She couldn't tell. And then she said, when you were in surgery, um, she goes, before the doctor came in to tell us they were able to get the left side of your artery embolized and they were working on the right side. She said, I knew you were going to be okay. She said, a feeling came over me that it was going to be okay. And then she jokingly came up in the ICU and I, they had taken the vent out and she came up to see me 48 hours later. And she said, don't ever do this to me again. <laughs> don't you dare ever do this to me again. And her and her husband um, currently are right now in Indiana. My brother-in-law works for the government. So there's a chance they could be moving again um, soon. But he was in DC at the time when my AFE occurred. Um, and she said, she goes, I don't think we could have any more children after knowing this. And there aren't any studies really saying it's hereditary or that it could happen, but my doctors did advise her not to have children since it did occur, you know, chemically with a reaction to the amniotic fluid embolism, um, that it, there's no guarantee that she couldn't experience one either like that. And since our chemistry is closely alike, they recommended she not have any, but I don't think they were going to have any more children anyway. They have one, his name's Jack and he's nine and he's brilliant. Mm -hmm. He's great. And uh, yeah, they're happy with what they have. They're, they're very blessed. So she said, after what I experienced, she wasn't going to carry on any longer. And neither did my sister-in-law. My sister-in-law was contemplating and juggling around the decision of maybe having a third. And then after the AFE, she said, no more. Well, I can only imagine um, what that experience is like for our loved ones. And I had a friend um, probably about a year ago, I was asking her a little bit about what the experience of my AFE was like for her. And she said, you have to remember it happened to you, but there was a ripple effect. And that right. ripple effect is very, very big and long and wide. And I was yes. like, you're absolutely right. Along with the medical staff. There's oh, absolutely. There's one in particular, my, I, I stay in contact with a lot of my medical staff. Um, they, were, they were brilliant. They were great. One in particular is newly pregnant and she's, she goes, I think of you every day. And I said, I hope you think of me in a good light. I don't want you to be scared, you know, or think of the negative. I said, I really want you to think in a positive light that, you know, there, there are positive outcomes and we are working on more positive outcomes. So yeah. it's a, it's a process and it, it's, it'll take time. Absolutely. And as long as we're all here for each other and we extend our hands and our arms out to everybody, we'll get the answers that we need. So what would your advice be for um, newly pregnant people? Uh, you talked a little bit about, I believe it was your doctor, correct? Yes. Yeah. Your doctor or um, family members who are impacted by AFE or what would your advice to any of them be? I think, to be honest, I think my advice would be knowledge, read up. 
if you're newly pregnant, you don't have to read necessarily all the negative things that could occur in your pregnancy, right? It's already overwhelming as a new parent experiencing a new child coming into the home. What could happen? What could occur during pregnancy delivery? But I think being aware of your body, knowing potentially, do you have any high risk factors? Do you have any family history of miscarriages or high risk factors? You know, I think those are questions that are need to be asked with your healthcare provider, your doctor, your high risk doctor, your OB, um, and expressing any concerns you have along the way. This is what I'm concerned about. This is what I'm feeling. Being open and honest with your communication, with your doctor, with your family is highly important because then everybody's going to know how serious you are, what your concerns are, and how they can ease those. Because some of these concerns can sometimes be built up in our heads, or some of them are maternal instinct. Some of them are just our maternal instinct. We can't explain it. We don't know why we know it or why we have these concerns. They're just there. Mm -hmm. Now, in expressing those feelings, they can help you sort those out. And then when the time comes, that can be set aside or put a little star next to, this is what this patient is experiencing. This is what this patient is concerned about. How do we help them work through that? Or that'll put a little highlighted bar across their desk. This is what they're concerned about. We need to be aware of it. And I think communication and being open and honest is what every new mother or new parent should, should be aware of. Yeah, that's great advice. Well, thank you again, Courtney, so much for being on our podcast. It truly was a pleasure to connect with another sister and uh, hear a little bit more about your, your story in detail. Thank you for having me and allowing me to share everything on your space. I really appreciate it. Our pleasure. Truly, it was. It was an honor. Uh, well, thank you, everyone, for listening today. This is your host, uh, Kathy Garrett, from the Twinkie Chronicles podcast, where two twins are shedding light on the childbearing years. Bye-bye, everyone. Bye-bye.